Thanks for tuning in again. This is a combustible podcast. I can't even think of the name of it. It's got Hatch, Bill, Pabell, and Shane here, and we're also joined by Chris Wessels and this division chief for Major Metropolitan Atlanta Department. Welcome, Chris. Hey guys, how's it going? Awesome. Glad to be here, and I really like you guys' podcast, and I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. So uh, let's start off by getting a little background information about you, Chris. Uh, how did you get into the fire service? Okay. I'm the stereotypical kid that fell in love with fire trucks uh, before I could ride a bicycle, uh, watched emergency religiously growing up, um, and, and you know, kind of aged me in my household Saturday night the fight for the color TV was emergency or all in the family. So I got vetoed out. So the first half hour I'd have to watch emergency on the black and white TV and the rest of the family watched all in the family. And then <laughs> I got to watch the last half of emergency in color. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I pretty much got this sickness as long as I can remember. And, uh, when I went to Auburn, I uh, found out they hired part-time people, and then I eventually went full-time there, but much to the chagrin of my dad, uh, I kind of was doing college and firefighting at the same time. Chris, what'd you, uh, what'd you go to college for? Did you get a degree in a particular? Um, I went there to get a degree in engineering, but my study habits and discipline ended up getting me a degree in operations management. And I don't understand. I, I don't know what operations management is real quick. Just basically it's, it's the skirting of engineering. It's production and manufacturing quality uh, okay. control and, okay. and management and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm always fascinated by what people have gone to school for and what they end up doing in life. Rarely with the exception of doctors and lawyers, do you find people that say, yeah, I went to school for this and that's what yeah. I do. Hmm. All right. And, uh, yeah. I, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you're the guest. You go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny because engineering was kind of the expected path because my dad was an engineer, my oldest brother's an engineer, my other brother's in school for engineering, so it's kind of like the default. And uh, but you know, like I said, between my study habits and getting distracted by the fire department, uh, that and that degree really didn't work out. <laughs> so did you? Did you end up? Did you end up leaving? Uh, Auburn and then trying to immediately get hired on with a, a fire department or did you try and work in the organizational management field and then no I, I worked um, I worked for Auburn fire I worked there part-time for a year then went full-time and then um, when I graduated I stayed another year while I was figuring out what I was going to do and I applied to several different metro departments um, and uh, got hired with the department I've been with now for 27 years. And it's funny because uh, Cortez Lawrence, some people may be familiar with him, he was the one that actually started the smoke diver program in Georgia back in the late 70s. He ended up being our public safety deputy director at Auburn, and he was kind of a pretty big mentor of mine, and he's the one that steered me towards where I work. Um, but had I not gotten hired, he was kind of working on me to go uh, OCS in the Army because uh, he had had a military background and he was a Vietnam veteran, combat veteran. And uh, so had I not been hired by my department, I was probably going to very seriously consider uh, going Army OCS. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so for the department that you do work for, what uh, what was your path through that as far as uh, positions and ranks? Uh, I was fortunate in that I pretty much did everything. Um, I uh, started, obviously, as a firefighter at a single house and went to a double house. Uh, neat story there, too. Um, my first day in the station, and I hadn't said squat to anybody. I was trying to be the fly on the wall in recruit school and everything. Um, my battalion chief came in the first day and said, hey, I know you probably like a double house. Uh, just be patient. We're going to get you to one. And, I mean, this guy didn't owe me anything. You know, and back in those days, the battalion chiefs were like, you know, semi-gods. You know, the, the shift commander was God, and the battalion chief was kind of a, the right Whatever this year under yeah yeah the right hand of the father you know and uh you know you didn't as a rookie you didn't talk to your battalion chief good morning sir and then you went about your business so for him on my very first day of meeting me for him to say that kind of struck me odd and sure enough like ten months later this is kind of a cool story too um, they sent me to a, a really good double house near my single house and uh, arrived for three shifts on the truck and after the third shift. Or at the end of the third shift, my captain at that house said, Hey, you want to stay a couple more shifts? I was like, yeah. And he called the and He said, okay. And then like an hour later, he called me back up front. He goes, Hey, you just want to stay here permanent? I was like, yeah. <laughs> and this is so a good that system. Fourth, Hell yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So that fourth shift, I put my stuff by the back door of the truck cab and, uh, the veteran firefighter goes, what are you doing? I just put my gear out. He said, oh, no, 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 no. You're a member of this company now. You're on the engine, buddy. <laughs> and he said, I ride the truck. You got hoodoo. <laughs> and um, then another funny story, my captain, he was a great old school fire captain. And he, uh, after like three months, he looked at the, the paddle board with my name. And he goes, your name's not Wetzel? And I said, no. He goes, well, why didn't you let me call you Wetzel? I was like, didn't really matter. I knew you were talking to me. And he goes, what's your first name? I said, Cap, I've been here three months, and you don't know my first name? <laughs> and he was dead serious. And he said, well, I wanted to make sure you're going to work out before I bother to learn your first name. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we need more of that today. Uh, you know, I'm not, we certainly don't need some of the hazing stuff that went on in the past, but we need more of that kind of in a respectful way. You've got to earn your spot, your way, yep. your spot. Yeah. All um, right. I'm going to challenge you on this. You are one of the most um, aggressive about getting to know the people of anybody I know in the department. You're, you're very uh, approachable. You're a very easygoing guy to talk to. Uh, and obviously, I've known you for years, so it's not. I'm not just talking about from my level. I'm talking about for the firefighters. You're very outgoing with them. So how could you say at the same time that you think that that's something you should do, but you work very hard at being uh, – a man of the people. Well, I'm, I'm not going to answer for him, but yeah, his, him position, answer, then you jump in his position's a little bit different than the captain. I know, but I'm telling you, he's still very, very approachable. He always has been. But I, I guess what I meant, I was like, I didn't, in recruit school, I wasn't going around, hey, I want to work at this stage, right? You know, it, so for that battalion chief to just tell me that out of the blue struck me odd because I wasn't like politicking to get to a double house, I guess is what I meant, you know. Oh, um yeah, yeah, that's all I meant. So were you? Uh, yeah, I know I'm a. You saying more like let your actions speak instead of your mouth? I guess so. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Because what I found out uh, and kind of, well, the other part of the story I didn't tell our captain at training, like halfway through recruit school, 
he used to call us up to the office. He's like, you know, recruit after to the office. And you had like two seconds to be up there. Everybody had to do push up. And, uh, it was payday. So he's like, recruit wrestle to the office for checks. So I go hauling up to the office at the training center and he gave me the checks for everybody. And they said, Hey, um, I'm going to try to get you to choose a 10. I was like, okay. And I didn't hear again, I didn't say anything else. Unsolicited, just totally out of the blue. And it kind of floored me. And I didn't say a word to anybody because I'm like, I don't know why he told me that, but I knew those were good stations. I'm not killing this. I'm not saying. So the other cool thing is I found out after the fact, the reason I didn't go to the double house initially, a guy in the recruit class after us, his father used to be with our department and he moved, went to another department and he had died of a heart attack. And out of respect for his legacy, they gave his son one of the double houses in my battalion uh, uh, because the, our, my battalion chief had a relationship with his dad when he worked for us. And so it was kind of like a, out of respect and honor to the, his late father. And that made me feel even better that I didn't go to a double house because of the reason that makes sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and some people say, Oh, that's political or that's favoritism. Or to me, it was just honoring that man's legacy by, getting his son a start in his career at a good station. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> I, got I know. A, right, well, I digress. I got a question. Uh, Chris, this is Pabell and I know you, we've crossed paths, but I know you mostly by yeah. reputation. And mm-hmm. what I'll say is you mentioned about, you know, back in the days, the BC was like the second hand of God. And when you're approached by them, even with this story you just told, where you felt almost favored to go that they would even engage with you, try to remember your name and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Your reputation precedes you as one, I would say, like Hatch just mentioned, that you're very well respected, but also that approachable mentor type person. So I know in the past, it was that that grit, that person that wouldn't give you the time of day, the person that, you know, was just, you wouldn't hear three words from them. And that may be the mentor. And there was very few people that were that approachable, let's say at the leadership level, like you were saying, mm-hmm. BCs were something that you just didn't talk to. Did they, they, they just did right. their stuff, but, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. It doesn't appear that your career led you in that direction because anybody that i almost anyone that I would ask, they would say, you are a mentor, you are approachable. So what, if that's a fact, then what caused you to go in that direction, being more of an approachable person, more of wanting to remember names, more of wanting to, um, what I would interpret as invest a lot of yourself into the fire service versus the one that is just silent grit out on the side and doesn't give you the time of day unless he feels it necessary. If that makes sense. Uh, it does. And I think it's two things. I think, well, maybe three things. Part of it is kind of who you are. Cause I think who you are as, as far as far as a person is always going to transcend your environment. I think, um, secondly, two incredible mentors. I had, uh, my shift commander at Auburn in, uh, he was an amazing mentor, equal to my father, but in different ways. Um, and he, it was being a smaller department, two stations, you know, 65 people. It wasn't that formality of structure. And he was so approachable, so amiable, so just 
down to earth. And um, so I think his influence and his leadership style had a big influence on me. And then Cortez Lawrence. Cortez, if you came to him with something, he would give you unbridled authority to do it as long as you just kept them updated. Um, so I kind of was fortunate in that I was in an environment where people kind of uh, mentored and inspired that. And it's funny because we kind of had a round robin of fire chiefs for a while at Auburn. And we had a guy that came in from Montgomery, super competent, super professional, but he was that straight line dictatorial on the boss. And he and I were like oil and water did not get along. Mm -hmm. And um, so to say that, I think the third part is it's generational. I think our generation is the one that started to kind of break out of that, that whole mindset where, where, whether it's, children should be seen or not heard or telling the rookie, we didn't hire you. you know, we hired you from the shoulders down. You know, we don't care what you think. We just want your brawn. Um, all those kind of uh, obsolete mindsets we put into young people um, that I think our generation is the one that started breaking those barriers and saying, Hey, wait a minute. You know, there is some value to somebody, even though they're new. And um, I think it's uh I think those things together, and I was just fortunate because of the leaders I had. And with that battalion chief that, you know, you really did, he was super nice, too. He was super amiable and very respectful. It just wasn't the thing that the rookie chatted with the battalion chief. But he wasn't one of these hard-nosed, you know, he was a very approachable, very kind-hearted person as well. So, um, and it's funny, I look at, like, not just in the fire service, but I look at, um, Management as a whole used to be so dictatorial. And then I guess kind of maybe this relates. What you have to realize is you're nothing special. Whether you're the governor of Georgia or you're the fire chief of the biggest fire department, you're nothing special. And we're all a couple strokes of fate in life away from being that homeless person that we look down on, right. you know, or, or could possibly look down on. All of us are one or two bad strokes of fate away from that person's that same life. So when you start factoring in the fact that, Hey, you know, I'm assistant chief or I'm this, but I, it doesn't make me any better. That just gives me a different role. Um, so I guess that's kind of maybe wraps a bow around it. That makes that perfect makes sense. sense. I agree with that hundred percent. You know, Chris, you're making me this bill. You're making me re remember that, uh, at my first station, it was a battalion station and I was rookie firefighter and some of my fondest memories now that I'm remembering it were sitting out back at the station at the picnic table with the battalion chief and my lieutenant. And I mean, we'd sit out there until two or three, two or three o'clock in the morning just with them telling stories. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, but like you said, and you know, at the same token, you knew the line, like you didn't, right. Like you didn't go to the chief about stuff, you know, you went to your captain about stuff and more than likely it never left the firehouse. Right. You know? Um, and, um, but yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I think, um, I think we've kind of gone a little too far the other way now. Um, I think we have to kind of reel some of it back and kind of find a middle ground. And it's interesting. You know, we always talk about what's the generation we always talk about now that, um, uh, now they're saying Generation Z, but what's the ones we always complain about? That, uh, the millennials? Millennials, yeah. Well, a few years ago, they had an Army Aviation Conference at the Georgia World Congress Center, and they had all their 
rotary ring aircraft in the Congress Center. They flew them in and rolled them in. And we were walking around talking to this guy who was a 30-year veteran. He was a crew chief. And he was like an E-8 maybe, pretty high up, E-8 or E-9. And his name, I'll never forget, um, he was from a South American country, and his, his name was uh, Oscar Gomez. And they immigrated to the U.S., and he served in the United States military because he wanted to serve his new country. And I said, my God, 30 years, when are you going to give it up? And he said, when it's not fun anymore. And so I said, hey, in the fire service, we're always complaining about the new rookies and the new generation. What's your viewpoint of an Army recruit in now versus when you came in? This was back in 2007. So this was in you know, 2007 versus 1977 when you came in the military. And he said, still the same willingness and eagerness to serve, the same desire to do good. He said, the difference is my generation provided the service, and that was the end of the discussion. He felt like the more younger generation had the caveat, now what do I get in return? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe that's one of the differences. You know, the younger generation is looking, they're, they're just as dedicated, just as capable, just as smart, just as eager, but there's that caveat of looking for a little bit more of a return. So where does that... And I thought, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Chris. Where no, does that no, no. where does that mentality fit into a, a profession that most of us see as this selfless laying down our lives for other people? I'm not asking for anything in return. I think it's our responsibility to teach them that because obviously they didn't figure it out along the way. Um, but we it's our our responsibility to teach them that through example and mentoring as opposed to ridicule and ostracizing. And um, another great example, a guy, um, Hatch and I went to recruit school with, and he left to go to another department. And he's an icon, he's about to retire, but he's an icon in that department. He's one of the best driver engineers in the department. And guys were griping about the millennials, the millennials, the millennials. And he said, let me tell you guys something. He said, you put me on this pedestal. He said, before I came to the fire service, the biggest thing I ever drove was a Toyota pickup truck. I'd never used, Chris Wessel taught me how to use the circular saw when I built the workbench for my first house. And he started rattling off people that taught him how to do things. He said, all these things you put me on a pedestal for, I got through the fire service. Mm -hmm. And I didn't bring them to the fire service. He said, so why are we sitting here ridiculing these young guys because they can't do this or don't do that or don't know this? It's our job to teach them, you know? Yeah. Well, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we got through you being a firefighter. <laughs> oh, God. Moved any further than that? Oh my God! Okay, let's fast forward. So yesterday, uh, <laughs> yeah, made lieutenant. Um, thought well, made driver. Excuse me, made, made driver. Love that spot. My plan was to be a driver for six years. They told us our recruit class wasn't eligible for lieutenant, and one of our guys challenged it. And they researched the records. Oh yeah, you guys are eligible by two days. Took the lieutenant's test, made lieutenant. Spent three years as lieutenant, um, no, three and a half maybe, took the captain's test, spent three and a half years as a captain, and then begrudgingly took the BC process and made BC, then made AC, did a stint as the operations chief, and then went back to AC, and that's probably what would be a whole other podcast worth of stories there. Um, <laughs> and I will say this. My most fun position was driver. My most gratifying position was captain. 
You know, you, you're bringing up an interesting point, Chris, because I, I get that question every once in a while from recruits as well when we're just in talking to them and, and letting them ask questions. And they'll say, what's the funnest part of your job? And I have to remind them there's there's gratifying and there's fun. Exactly what you said. Those are two completely right. different things. They are. You said they you are. begrudgingly took the uh, battalion chief's test. Yes, I did. Because I love being a captain. I felt like I finally become at peace with myself and my, my career. Um, cause I was always striving for something, you know, wanted to get certified as an extra engine driver, wanted to get certified as an extra truck driver, wanted to make FAO, wanted to get rope class, wanted to get this, wanted to get on the, you know, the heavy, wanted to do this, do that. And so I made captain and I was like at peace because it was the last thing I could do on my own because beyond captain, you know, it's appointed. So captain was the last achievement I could earn legitimately on my own and I was at peace I loved it um but I wasn't totally satisfied with who I saw stepping up to be BCs and I was like you know what if uh I don't try to step up myself I can't complain um I didn't enjoy being a BC though I did not like that spot um I enjoy ship commander uh say another quick sidebar and I think all this kind of does relate to mental health in a, in a roundabout way because your mentors do a lot to help build who you are and give you that strength and that fortitude to get through the tough times. But um, when I was teaching at FDIC, I was on the fence about taking a lieutenant's test because I wanted to still just stay a driver. And this guy um, named Kogan, from, uh, he retired out of Rescue 3 in FDNY with a uh, on-the-job injury. And he was an instructor up at FDIC. And we were drinking a beer one night. And I said, yeah, I'm eligible for lieutenant, but I'm not going to take the test because I love being a driver. He said, Chris, let me tell you something. You don't ever pass up an opportunity on this job. You go back, sign up for that test, and take the test. So I made lieutenant. So the next year at FDIC, I searched him out, and I told him that I made lieutenant, and it was only because of his motivation. And this is like salt FDNY lieutenant on rescue three. And the guy started tearing up. Wow. That's awesome. And I thought that was pretty awesome. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You made a yeah. light bulb go off in, uh, on, on Bill's head. Mike Kogan. It's Mike Kogan. I suppose Mike Kogan was his name. Awesome dude. I'm sorry. Light bulb went off. I said you made a light bulb uh, for Bill go off. Yeah. Chris, you said something that I had not ever really – it never registered with me that captain was the last thing that you could do on your own without somebody else, and that I've never thought of it that way. That that's a, yeah. a very very interesting perspective. That that really does well, change. And to parlay onto that, that's why I tell people, you can't be mad if you don't make whatever chief you're striving to make, and you can't be arrogant if you do, because it wasn't it was on somebody's decision, not on. Right. We'd like to think it's on your merits because of what they saw in you, but not necessarily. So, you know, don't hate the department because you don't make chief. And don't think you're the baddest thing around because you do, uh, because you know it's uh, it's kind of anybody's game at that point. Stay at least humble. in the departments in this area, yes, yeah, stay humble. You know there are departments obviously where that's tested, um, but in our area, that's generally not the case. So don't let it go to your head. You know, right? And it ties into that servant leadership thing, in that um, which a lot of people are now using as a buzzword, but it's you know. If you ever declare yourself a servant leader, you're probably not a servant leader. 
Um, <laughs> but you know, we're, we're stewards of these positions. I don't own my rank. I'm a caretaker of the rank while I have it. The citizens of my city, I almost said it, the citizens of my city own the rank I possess right now. And I'm the caretaker. So, you know, how can I be arrogant for something that's not even mine? You know, no, I really like that. That's yeah, you just, that's two that. light bulbs for you, Chris, if yeah. you're keeping score. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> you're lighting me up. So what did you not enjoy about that uh, battalion position? You said that's the one that you favored the least? I felt like a lieutenant again. You know, because like when you're a double house, you're a lieutenant, the captain runs the house. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. And I, so I kind of felt like a lieutenant to my shift commander as a captain, you know, um, so, but I had a great shift commander I worked for. He was one of my huge mentors. So it was a great working relationship. I just, and then here's the other thing I, I made, mistake I made. I got involved in too much stuff. You know, I wasn't married at the time, didn't have my family. So anything to try to help make the fire department better, I was into it, you know, committees, da, da, da. So probably I worked myself too hard and I wasn't able to sit back and enjoy where I was at. So that, I think that was part of it too. Yeah, I think most can probably sympathize with giving too much of themselves and that can suck the joy out of things. Yeah, yeah not pacing yourself. Yeah. But you, anyway, I'm, go ahead, I'm sorry. Have you ever been up for a promotion that you didn't get? Uh, I got one taken away. <laughs> well, I know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, we, we won't get I'm, into that. One. Chris, we were we were we had told you we were going to talk about one thing, but you you have kind of segued <laughs> you've segued into something that we were going to talk about uh, in another episode that we were going to record right after this one, and it's kind of a perfect opportunity to talk about it right now, which is okay. the idea of what do you do when you don't get promoted? You know what? Um, how do you how do you deal with being passed over, and and what do you do? when you go back to the station or you go back to wherever your assignment is and you know, people are looking at you and you're, you're examining yourself and it's simple. It's so simple. You remember the core purpose of why you're there. You remember the foundational values that brought you there in the first place and you go back to work. So I always say and that I, I, I experienced the five phases of grief or whatever those, you know, I can't remember what they're called, but you know, the acceptance and the, the bargaining and all of that stuff. And I, I end up going through all of those. Um, I'm not as good to just go back and I mean, I, I don't stop working, but I end up right. going through this, this mental processing thing. And it's, it's never the same. I don't deal with those five things in the same order every time. And I think one of the points that we were kind of going to get to with the, the whole idea is that a lot of the younger firefighters see those of us who have been promoted as just being promoted, they don't see all of the times that you tried to get promoted, that you were, you weren't promoted, you know, that it was this process. It was keep trying and keep performing. And, right. You know, and I was very fortunate in that I never missed a promotion. Um, and th this one really doesn't count when, uh, when they were looking I for take a fire it back. chief, you, you might be the wrong person to talk to about this subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, no. Um, but, but, um, I, I was just fortunate, but I tell you, and, and the other thing you, people understand, everything's, everything's by a razor's edge. I almost did something on my FAO test that would have been an automatic failure and I would have been out. Um, I miscalculated the pump problem and kept making the same mistake over and over and over 
And so one of the evaluators said, don't waste time arguing, work your problem. And I worked it one more time, read loud to myself. And so, you know, people kick themselves. I would have kicked myself too, but you got to understand too, sometimes it's your razor's edge from making it or not making it. So again, you know, don't beat yourself up, figure out where you can improve, go back and kick it in the butt the next time. Um, one thing I did go for that I didn't get, and I didn't knew I wasn't going to get it. Um, when they were looking for a fire chief, they were just throwing a net out there. And I got a call from the recruiter. Hey, your name was submitted to reply for fire chief. You know, and this was back in like 2010. And I applied just because, you know, part of it's ego, part of it's wow. They actually, somebody actually put my name in, but come to find out they were just throwing a net and asking everybody and their mother to apply. But um, so technically that's something I went for and didn't get but I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't hoping for it. And I probably would have been scared to death if I got it at that point, you know? Um, so anyway, but you know, a lot of good people that you think are just going to ace promotional tests have difficulty. And a lot of times it's just learning the process really because they're technically competent. Um, but you just got to learn the intricacies of whatever that promotional process is and learn how to succeed and, and be successful with it. Well, and I'd, I'd say for me personally, when I had been passed over, um, previously, a lot of it was wrapped, a lot of my difficulty processing, it was wrapped up in not only that I didn't get promoted, but who got promoted. Um, yeah, because yeah, I start to yeah. tie my value to what I say is my perception of their value and how you know, right. well, I, I do this better and I do that better. And that's just this endless pit that you fall into and, you know, it, it never, you're never going to convince yourself. So you right. said you like no, uh, right. fire trucks you know, when you were a kid, are you building one in the background? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You can't hear that. I yeah, we can hear. I've been listening to it the whole time. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the workshop cause, uh, my little guy's upstairs with my wife. And if he sees me, you know, it's over cause he'll be all up in my face. But I'm just, I'm just nervous energy organizing in the workshop. So I'll, I'll stop that. That would be awesome. So, um, yes. One more thing, Chris, with this, this idea, and um, you mentioned just getting back to work, and our, we had someone in our department whose philosophy on getting passed over was that um, you don't, it, it, what I'm going to say could be taken aggressively, but he was not a proponent of using it aggressively, but it was this idea that if I get passed over, I'm going to make the person who made that decision basically realized they were wrong for passing me over through my actions. I'm going to continue doing my job and doing it well. And at some point they're going to go, you know, it was a mistake not to promote that person. And I think that's kind of a, you know, you could do it aggressively. I'm going to make you realize, you know, you fucked up and yeah. that kind of crap. But if, if you do just put yourself back into it and get back to doing what it was that you were doing, uh, yep. that you thought was the reason you were going to get, you know, it might work out the next time. And I think uh, this Shane, Chris, um, that kind of bodes well into what we hear a lot of times uh, in this particular topic is uh, when you don't get promoted, what you do at that point says a lot more about when you did yeah, get promoted. That's true. So, oh, of course, character. Yeah, because yeah, then character. you really start to strip back an individual. And um, not that, you know, everybody has their fault. So as they're working through this grief model, like Bill likes to – like to say, which I, I think is appropriate, but you definitely get to see who 
people are sometimes. So when you don't make it, you, you definitely get to take a look in the, in the glass a little bit. You know, it's funny you say that. You're absolutely right. And uh, just super brief, when I made assistant chief, I didn't make myself assistant chief. You know, I was appointed to that position. There was a, no, no, I'm sorry, it was Batanchi. Batanchi. Um, there was a guy who, by all rights, should have made it before me. You know, veteran, sharp guy, but, you know, whatever, he didn't. He ended up making it shortly thereafter. But the first time he saw me after the list came out, he looked at me like I just slapped his mother, you know. And wouldn't talk to me for, you know, until he made it. And our paths didn't cross a lot, but it, it just always resonated with me because I was like, I didn't make myself, right. you know. So, first of all, why be mad? Secondly, if you're going to be mad, don't be mad at me, you know. And uh, here again, I think that's when character, true character, because this particular person was always in the, in the old regime, was like the up-and-comer, and the regime changed, you know. And that's the other thing is people hitch the wagon to people, you know, and people change. So, you know, if you decide to hitch your wagon to what you think your path to whatever you visualize as your success is, understand if that wagon breaks down, you know, your actions are going to dictate where you, where you move forward, you know, and, and how the new regime perceives you and all that kind of stuff. So, it just and that gets in the whole political thing, which is probably seventeen more podcasts worth of stuff. And it's just <laughs> well, we need topics. Um, yeah. But you know, and this kind of goes maybe segues into the mental health stuff. Is when I was a union rep um, in the late nineties, early two thousands, I kind of came up with a little slogan. I said, "Why is it that we are in a profession that's geared towards helping others, but we do so much to hurt each other?" So um, true. Yeah, and it just boggles my mind. It boggles my mind. Um, and you look at because you look at humans. a lot of issues. Yeah, because we're humans. We have envy. We have jealousy. Right. We have you know pride and greed and all those things. Um, so, uh, but you know, it's uh, I don't know. It's just uh, and here again, a lot of this stuff easier said than done, right? You know, uh, but most things but are I think easier it, said than done. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Chris, this Pabell, we've we've kind of skirted over some of the mental health things a couple of times. And one of the things that I wanted to just get your opinion, your thoughts on is we know that the mental health topic is just something that's pressing today. It's in the forefront. Most departments are addressing it one way or another. You can't turn the computer on without seeing an article in it or the effects of poor mental health in the fire service. You know, the not the argument but some of the debate that you'll hear is why why is it so prevalent today did we not have this problem two decades ago or was the problem just present and we weren't really putting statistics it wasn't in the forefront we weren't we didn't have the media stream that we have now to go hey here's the data here's the facts so if something happens to somebody we immediately know about it um do you think that this is just catching up with us now and we're addressing it. Do you think it's always been an issue? It's just been kind of not addressed, not in the forefront. What are your thoughts on what's going on now? Um, well, uh, it's pretty, I think that's the easy answer too. And I'll use maybe it might be a goofy analogy. Um, I love analogies. They're my have you ever had a roof leak? Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Do you think houses 50 years ago had roof leaks? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, there was a guy 
that um, back in the early 90s, the uh, Gypstick brought this guy on board that was a psychologist to start dealing with mental health and public safety. And he tells us, told a story back then uh, as he was going around the state kind of, I think it was, I don't know, it was a fire police chief, but he was in, you know, wherever Georgia. And this chief said, before you came along, we never had any of this. Uh, back then, they didn't call it PTSD. They called it um, critical incident stress, right? Mm-hmm. He said, before you came along, we never had any of this critical incident stress. You're stirring up a hornet's nest. So I think it's always been there. Uh, we ignored it. We pretended it wasn't there. Um, people self-medicated. People did counterproductive things in personal relationships. Uh, people, uh, you know, indulged in, in destructive activities. Um, I think it's always been there, and we've always just ignored it. And I think another great analogy is, and this is something we have to change in society as a whole. If your knee hurts, what do you do? Go to the you doctor. Go to the doctor. If your belly's been hurting for a week, you go to the doctor. You know, if you tear your shoulder, you go to the doctor. If your mind is jacked up, oh, no. I don't want people to think I'm crazy. I'm not going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. People think I'm crazy. But your mind controls all that other stuff that we just talked about. You get sick. So there's this, in society as a whole, there's a, a stigma with seeking out mental health. But your mental health affects everything else about you and your life. So as a society as a whole, we've got to get past the stigma of seeking out mental health doesn't mean, you know, you've got, you know, and the crazy is a derogatory term, I guess, but it doesn't mean you're crazy. You know, it just means you need help. You need to fix your mind just like you need to fix your stomach or your knee or your ankle. And um, I will say our uh, department and our city is, I think, very proactive with mental health. We have had an excellent employee assistance program that I've dealt with at a very detailed basis for over a decade. And I've seen a lot of good come out of it for our people. Um, so, you know, back to the original question, I think it's always been there. We're just being more proactive at recognizing it and trying to address it. Um, but we've got a long way to go. And I think it's every bit as important as your physical fitness and every bit as important as you knowing how to throw a ladder. Uh, because none of that stuff matters if your head's not squared on straight. I, I couldn't agree more. I'll tell you, I, uh, some of what prompted the question is about three weeks ago, there was a post that came out by Combs, the picture, and it has a uh, firefighter sitting, sitting there. And what it says on there is, you're a firefighter. That's cool. What's the worst you ever saw? And then, oh, yeah. You, you, okay. So yeah. I, I think most people are aware of that picture. If you haven't, look it up. And then the firefighter is looking to the side and obviously there's silhouettes and it says, which one of us are you going to tell him about? And I thought that was such yeah. a powerful picture. Well, I put it up and I just put up so true. Don't ever ask. Well, that prompted a bunch of questions. And from some of the, let's say, don't ever ask. Oh, I'm going to ask him a bunch of questions. <laughs> right. Uh, I'll consider it. I'm sorry. I'm so, uh, so what it prompted is some of the younger guys that would say, Hey, don't you think we should be talking about this? And it, it, I wanted the further explanation. With <laughs> My mindset was telling the public, you know, and this is kind of what I explained to him. Look, we, we have to live with this stuff. We're sworn to protect. 
uh, one, we don't want to be reminded of it. Two, we definitely don't want you to relive or to live through what these images are or anything else. So right. I'm not saying don't talk about it. But that's isn't that the difference? That those people are saying, shouldn't we talk about it? Yes, you should talk about it to your peers, to, to people your that peers. are. Right. That's that correct. Are, right. This yeah. is a this is a cartoon that shows some, you know, a, a, a civilian. A, yeah, exactly. Right. And that's and what I was yeah. trying to explain. Is that's not healthy. You know, for the civilians, I was trying to tell them, don't yeah. ask us that. Don't make us relive that. Don't make us look at those images yeah. on the right. side. Yeah, I always tell uh, them that exactly. you really don't want to know. You don't want to know what my worst yeah. call is. No. Right. And one of the questions that was posed, uh, uh, an individual, he said, "Look, you guys have been doing this for a minute." shouldn't we tell them about it? Shouldn't we educate the public? And I said, yeah, we should educate the public to let them know that we see some extremely difficult things. And these are not things that we want to relive. And we would want to protect everybody from including them are. Uh, and I think you hit on this and you're hundred percent correct. Uh, the mental health issues need to be handled with mental health professionals and our, uh, our ability to have the discussions is amongst peers to have a good understanding of it, not infecting the public. That doesn't do nothing for them, really. It's not, you know, that's, and for us, reliving a moment with somebody that will not understand. And I just listened to uh, something here recently that honed at home, which is your average person has not even seen a dead body. The average no. person walking oh, around hasn't no, even seen a dead not. body. And absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, and for us, you know, the stuff that we see year after year and the things that we do is, you know, it just flushed back there in the back of the mind. But when you stop to think and say, well, your, your average person walking the street, whether it's a spouse or a family member or a friend, they have no concept of that. They don't see it. So for me to even try to explain it, it, it just doesn't do any good in, in, in my opinion. So it's, it's a self-discussion, the peer-driven uh, support systems that are being created as well, and you hit on it, and I think it's spot on. I think cities, counties, municipalities should be looking into professional help because the brain is an organ, and it requires a, yep. just like you said, just like a lung or a heart where, you know, cancer's a big deal, we were paying attention to cardiac, now this yep. is present, and it needs to be looked at as in that brain is an organ. And when something's wrong with that organ, you need to see the specialist that can help you to get through it. Absolutely. And, and, and those of us, because we're all going to be there if we haven't already, and you, it, you need to not look at it as a stigma. You need to be supportive just like you would if someone's going for a surgery or whatever. And are we allowed to name names? Can we, we mention names? If it's a, you can say whatever you want. Okay. Um, Okay, like most of you guys did, so as a young firefighter, right, right, you know, you're like, oh, I don't like the gloves my department gives me. So you look in the yellow pages back in that time, oh, fire equipment dealer. So I stumbled across this place called American Safety and Firehouse, and the owner, co-owner, was a guy named Bill McDonald. His children are still in the business today. And he started out as a contract firefighter for American La France out in Montana which parlayed into him selling American LaFrance fire trucks, which parlayed into him having his own business, moving to Atlanta. And he shared with me when I had my first uh, grab in Auburn, I was talking to him about it because, you know, the, the, the skin was sloughing and stuff. And, and um, he said that he made a rescue years ago that was so badly burned that the next Thanksgiving, when his wife pulled the turkey out of the oven, he had a flashback to that image. 
to that person. Mm. Wow. So your question, has it always been here? Is it, it's always been here, right? I mean, mm. that's, bless his heart, he, he passed away over 10 years ago. So we're talking back in the 50s, he was a firefighter, you know. Right. Um, so it's always been here. So where that relates to me is that, you know, I had that experience at Auburn, and lo and behold, we're like having a barbecue. And you know how hot dogs split open? Mm-hmm. A couple hot dogs split open on the grill, and I had a flashback to this gentleman's, you know, right. skin condition. As I was. so, so yeah, that's that's critical instant stress. That's whatever you want to call it. That's that's what that how it manifests itself. Um, one of the most horrific days of my career was a uh, we had a fire in a mobile home park, and a lot of people are we going to have think, to put a parental they, warning on this thing for graphic content? Holy <laughs> shit! Man, <what's laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, go ahead. So. Um, so we had um, as an immigrant family, three children were left unattended while both their parents worked the night shift and a fire started. We pulled all three out. Um, all three ended up perishing, but the one that I came out with and started working never regained respirations. The other two did. And so when we sent them off on the ambulance, you know, mine didn't have respirations. The other two did. And automatically what I started doing. Did I do proper airway placement? Did I was using the BVM right? What was I doing? Why did mine not get respirations back? Right. And, you know, I didn't know until maybe the next shift or later in that day when I saw the news that all three ended up perishing. But um, at the time, we were framing a house for, some of you guys might remember for, from DeKalb, a guy named Gary Helton. Gary yeah. Helton? Yeah. Okay. He was building this beautiful house, um, and, and we were framing it. And um, he and I arrived at the job site first. And, um, I just started talking to him about that call because you know, it was that night and just talking to him about it was the healing I needed, you know? Uh, and it was so powerful for me. And I don't think I never told him that. I don't know if, you know, uh, you know, he, he probably doesn't even know that, but our conversation about that situation and, and the whole fire and the tragedy involved, just he and I talking was so healing for me. Um, and, I don't think I would have gotten through it the way I did had it not been for us having that conversation. Um, so that's why that's a huge element of it is us talking to each other as peers and also seeking out, you know, the mental health when we need it. Cause you know, when they come after a critical incident and they come to the station and give their spiel, nobody's going to raise their hand and say, you know what, this is how I'm feeling right now. Right. Cause that's just not how we're wired. But I know for a fact, people will contact them privately or talk amongst themselves, you know, to kind of get that, start that healing process so chris you said something that uh kind of spurred me to think something because i i know i do it um you said you didn't know if the if the kids had died um and it was a shift or two before you found out that they did do you think that you actively uh you don't pursue that information yeah, a, I didn't. A, I mean, I didn't. I, yeah. I didn't actively pursue it. I have since. I mean, there have been times I have, right? But in that particular instance, I didn't. You know, um, I didn't. I, and I think I'm that's. Like, a, I think that's that's part of how I kind of process that is that. Yeah, we're involved with the scene for this long, and then I kind of just flush it if I can. You know. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, and, I'm not and, following it to find out what happened, or you know. Right. Right. And we've, uh, you know, I've seen people do that. I've seen like people reconnect with people and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I don't think that's something we seek out to do on a regular basis because as feral as it sounds, 
I think the an- anonymity between us and the people we serve and help does help to shelter us mentally a little bit. Right. You know, yeah, I agree. Um, and I've gone to the hospital to check on people and I have done that kind of follow up, but it's just something weird has to touch you about it to make you do that. But I think on a regular basis or long-term contact, I don't think that's healthy because then you start owning everybody you serve and right. you know, you just, no one can shoulder that burden, you know, uh, right. no one can shoulder that burden. Yeah, what kind of but, you know, injury- go ahead? Well, no, I'm going to let you go no. ahead or you'll talk forever. Um, yeah, please. <laughs> so we're going to go uh, kind of full circle here a little bit. So you're talking about the, it's that we need to talk to somebody about the mental health part and the, the stress and the, the critical debriefing for what we do. And I think that plays really into what you were talking about earlier about being approachable as a leader and being somebody that somebody can come to because uh, a lot of these young leaders, young officers that are stepping up, I think they struggle with trying to connect with these younger generations and having those conversations because they are going to see tough things that they're not used to seeing that they haven't really been prepared right. for. And I think uh, right. you do an excellent job at that. And you always really have in, in my experience being around you of uh, being that very approachable guy that uh, they feel comfortable with and coming to and bringing their, you know, things that they've seen and looking for help. Um, and here again, that's just kind of, that's the, you, you start building that as a firefighter, you know, um, too, you know, because at some point in your career, you're going to kind of, focus in on what your ambitions are. So you need to start building yourself for that, you know, Hey, how am I going to get myself today and every step of the way to be who I want to be, you know, when I reach whatever I want to reach. Um, so I think that's important. And, uh, you know, here again, just goes back to that being real and understanding that, you know, you don't own even the positions we earn, you know, the tested positions, we still don't own them. And it's, it's an honor to have that position, not a, not a, um, entitlement. And, uh, and here again, just, you gotta love people. I mean, some people don't love people, you know, but you gotta love people. And, you know, we've, we've kind of focused on too, on the critical incident stress related to the job. I'm going to go on two quick tangents. One is at my level, some of my most stressful things have been totally unrelated to emergency services. It's the inner dynamics of how we treat each other internally. Um, and then secondly, you also have to factor in people's external stressors. Absolutely. Um, because, you know, that old saying, you don't bring your problems to work, that's garbage. Everybody brings their problems to work. You can't help it. Right. Everybody so, takes them home. Be, yep. So beyond the stressors of emergency operations, we really need to pay more focus on what external stressors. Right. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on some toes here. Um, especially with Hatch. I'm not a, I'm Easy. not a proponent. I know. Whoa. I'm not toes. a proponent of, I know, right? Uh, big hair. Big <laughs> hair too. Everybody always goes for the hair. Strands of steel. I know, right? Well, it's, it's easy. It's easy, it right? Easy. Um, it's easy. We always go for what's easy. I know it is. I'm jealous, actually. Um, the, uh, I'm not a big proponent of working at two different fire departments, and I know a gazillion firefighters do it, but I kind of think you get enough with your one department, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm not saying prohibited. I'm not saying, you know, anything like that. But for me personally, as big of a fire junkie as I am, fire department junkie, I kind of got my fill with one department. And I think if you do have to work a second vocation, if you can do something that's unrelated, it kind of gives you that distraction as 
and I have this very conversation this morning. It's very poignant because I didn't even know what we're going to be talking about. I had this very conversation with a guy who did it for 10 years. And he said, you don't realize the spiral you're in until you step out of it. You know, um, because you're increasing the opportunity for sleep deprivation. You're increasing the opportunity to see bad things. You're increasing the time you're away from your family. Um, so I guess I'm not trying to make this a sales pitch saying don't work with two fire departments. I just think I wish people would maybe recalibrate if you're going to do that, the extent to which you invest in that second department, you know, um, and not let it become a second full-time vocation. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. From a mental health yeah. perspective, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I get it because, hey, we all got to, you know, none of us aren't enough. I mean, historically, in this part of the country, fire departments are underpaid for what they should be. Everyone acknowledges that. We know it's a fact. We know it's the truth. So how are you going to maintain the lifestyle you want for your family? Well, you're going to seek other employment. And another fire department is kind of easy because, you know, you can, you can slip right in. You know, you've already got the certifications. You already know the lingo. But if you're like, ah, I want to learn how to be an electrician, you got to start from scratch. Or if you're like, oh, I want to, you know, be a plumber, you got to start from scratch. And it's weird because when I came in the fire service, that's what most firefighters did was another trade. But I think we've gotten away from that. You've had far less people today that do a trade on the side and far more that work in another fire department, you know, so. Yeah, Chris, this is Pabell, and I'd be remiss if I didn't jump in here for one second. And I 100% understand what you're saying. You have no idea what you just started. <laughs> <laughs> so and i'm not in complete disagreement and um i have to be cautious not to step on a landmine with the subject matter but you know there are states that have strong unions that actually oppose that type of work that specifically uh say that you can't um for some of the reasons that you stated and we did transition out of the generation where predominantly we had some of those second trade jobs that weren't related to the fire service. And we've transitioned more into, like you said, there are a lot of more people. It's a lot easier for you to go find a secondary job within public safety, whether you're running on an ambulance mm -hmm. or going to another fire department, because you know, the wages aren't supportive of a single job. So a lot of people have to go right. out and seek those wages somewhere else. Yep. Yep. What I would add to it is you know, if I think we can do a lot better of a job in public safety, period, to make sure that people are doing inter work to have a very clear understanding of themselves. And that's going to help you to make a determination of, you know, what will work for you, what won't work for you. Yeah. You'll have somebody that will put 30 years in and do two jobs and right. uh, public safety, and they're perfectly fine with it. And they were actually able to shape a lot of the fire service, and there, there's no issues. And then you can absolutely have people that try to venture out in that same avenue, and it could destroy their lives because they don't know how to balance their work and their personal life, and one may take over the other and so on and so forth. So I know it's a real tricky and complex subject because – you know, you have a lot of firefighters that are going to that second job that's, again, fire or EMS. And f being in a place that has 200 firefighters that show up as their second day on the job um, 
and there's not that many uh, that operate that way. We see the the benefits of it, and I, I'm not disagreeing with you. You could definitely see, hey, if I think we need to be more mindful. Let me just say this. I think we need to be more mindful as leaders to be paying attention to the signals to go, you may be in over your head. You may be what? overexerting your, <laughs> yourself, putting in too much. And, and, and true, and I'm not saying don't go work in another fire department, don't go work on an ambulance. What I'm saying is don't do 4824s. And, and here's, here's the whole other flip side. <clears throat> and uh, Hatch will get a kick out of this because he kind of knows my story, you know. And, uh, and being, you know, a late comer to being a husband and a dad, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, you guys, it's the greatest gift in the world. And when I was contemplating the future of my career shortly after my son was born, I was talking to one of our guys who's a retired deputy chief. And the neat thing about this guy, he's very uh, devout in his faith, but he's the kind of person, that, the only reason you know he's devout in his faith is because of how he lives his life. He's not the one that's telling you, hey, you know, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. It just, once you know the guy and the way he lives his life, you're like, ah, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not in your face with it. But we had this half an hour conversation and he said, well, Chris, it sounds to me like you've already made your mind up to where you want to take your career path as it relates to your family. Um, he said, and to reinforce what you're saying, I'm going to just leave you with this thought. He said, um, you're not put on this earth to work. He said, you're put on this earth to show your children a path to righteousness. And that was the most powerful statement anyone's made to me to help shape the decisions I have to make for my future and for my family's future. Um, and then, you know, then you hear all the corny phrases on social media, you know, your kids aren't going to remember what you give them. They're going to remember what you know, your, the time you're with them. And that, uh, Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou, um, who recently passed away, she's like a renowned poet and stuff like that. She had a pretty neat saying. She said that, um, people are going to forget what you say. People are going to forget what you do, but they're going to always remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think you just need to take the path in your life that's going to help you accomplish what you want personally. And the, the, the Achilles heel for us in the fire services, we have such an insane passion for what we do. Accountants don't go on vacation to the beach bringing patches and T-shirts to trade at other accounting <laughs> firms down at the beach. So true. No, no, no. They bring yeah. typewriters and they, stuff. They, and they like, don't go right. uh, podcasting down at the beach just so they could talk right. shop. Right. <laughs> yeah. Their family doesn't wear sweatshirts and hoodies with the accounting firm's logo on it, you know. <laughs> so, so we're so crazy in love with what we do that it can overtake our life if we let it, you know. Um, so I think it's important. Coming to from your you, point, that's, that's a lot too. Yeah, I, I mean, I was there. Yeah, yeah, you. Were I was there. These guys don't know you quite as well as I do, but yeah, yeah you were hundred percent there. No, I was there. You know, I would redo my career the whole a whole different way. I would not change my passion, enthusiasm, or dedication, but I would change how I let it manifest in my personal and professional life. I would um, say that you're bringing a, a little bit of a different different perspective for this reason. For instance, I have four kids, and coming into the fire service, I. I was almost a kid myself. I was very young trying to figure all this stuff out where you had a certain level of wisdom when you started the family that you're able to transition like that. And also, no doubt, the, the no later doubt. you are into your career, obviously you 
hopefully are in a better financial state than you were in your 20s when you first came in. So for for some of these guys that I see and they are, you know, in their 20s, starting their families, trying to buy a house, um, my recommendation is always don't buy a $60,000 truck that can probably help you financially. Avoid buying that $60,000 truck and just drive something you can afford for a while because you will pay for this in the long run. And I think that's another component. I did have the luxury coming into the fire service. Uh, First of all, family full of firefighters, but even going into some of the departments to have some of those senior people in there that are wise enough to go, look, don't, don't go buying a $60,000 truck and don't go do this. Put your money over here and set yourself up for tomorrow because this job is going yep. to beat the hell out of your body. And eventually you're going to have to, right. you know, set yourself up. So it's interesting the perspective that you bring because of the fact that you're, you, you know, you're already mature into your career. You got the wisdom behind you. Uh, so hopefully some of our younger people can hear this to set themselves up because really, when you when you make some of the financial decisions that I think we all have being young, they're going to set you back and they're going to force you to be in a position oh, yeah. that's not going to be healthy yep. for you. You hit the nail on the head, and, and um, I'm uh, I'm gonna have to duck out because we uh, are going to be going to uh, a uh, little kiddo birthday party in a little while. I hope um, excellent. We've hit the topic long enough, but I, I'm uh, I want to share with you. You hit the nail on the head. Um, because it's all about balance, right? And um, I think the reason I have the mentality I do, like you said, I have the advantage of the wisdom and a little bit better financial position than when you're young with a family. But I also didn't have it for so long. I truly, like if there's something you don't have, when you get it, you value it that much more. Yes. And um, a good friend of mine uh, had a neat comment. He said, you know, because I was talking about, like, you see some of these people that do these hobbies that take away from the family. And I was like, I'm not interested in that. And he said, you've reached true happiness in life when your family becomes your favorite hobby. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, But, guys, I appreciate the opportunity. I know I've been a windbag just gabbing away. No, that's but, no, uh, I appreciate, appreciate you. Yeah, you gave us a lot of um, uh, good, good uh, nuggets for uh, the listeners to uh, chew on absolutely. and think about. Well, we really appreciate to, um, you uh, taking the time with us. Man, I wish I wish I could do some more. Uh, maybe we'll do another one again. And, yeah, you uh, broke, we probably uh, already broke the world record for the longest podcast we've ever had. So. Well, you, you, oh, Lord Jesus. You, you passed the audition, so we might actually let you come do it in person. So. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's okay. Okay. All right, there you go. There you that go. This was a phone interview. Yeah, that has to happen. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. All right. Uh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. I got it. Thank you. Holy smokes. I think smokes. you may have fell down the steps. <laughs> <laughs> what an ending. All right, uh, listeners, uh, I hope there's something that you guys uh, could take from that. I'm sure there is. He had a lot to say, and uh, he, he's a great guy. I've known him for years, and uh, just a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience and perspective. Um, I, I, I saw several times little eyes perk up when uh, he said something just it's sitting around the table here. So if uh, you have any questions or anything that you want to uh, ask us, or questions you want us to bring up on the podcast, definitely reach out to us at uh, Combustible the Podcast. Info at CombustibleThePodcast.com. Oh, info at CombustibleThePodcast.com. We can only afford one email one address. Minute. That's right, right, right. The, the funds are very, very tight. Uh, sponsorship <laughs> should start rolling in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd really be nice. It'd really be nice. But uh, anyway, thank you very much for uh, tuning in, listening to us, and I uh, hope to hear from you next time.
All right. Thanks. See you. All right. Bye.